So we're in a series called I'm Just Asking. And we try to sort of um, start the fire by assuring ourselves that doubt is not forbidden and questions are never uh, off the table. We are welcome to express our doubts and we are welcome to ask our questions and keep asking our questions. Um, and faith and doubt can indeed coexist. I, I, I think I sort of, I see doubt and belief as, as sort of a, a needle on a gauge. So for, for me, a lot of times I, I find that the needle is kind of in, you know, the, horror, the vertical position and, and I have equal parts of belief and doubt. Sometimes I have more belief so the needle turns that way a little and sometimes I have more doubt and the needle goes a little the other way. And I always feel very guilty when, I, when I'm doubting because I feel like um, you're looking down on me. If, if I'm doubting and I'm a pastor, what kind of a pastor am I that could be doubting? So, so please assure me from time to time that if, if I have questions, um, that you can just say to me, it's okay to have some questions. You, you don't know all the answers, and we already know that. right? That's good, good for me to hear that you already know that I didn't have all the answers. So we're going to go on today to a very important question at the beginning of the set, which is, is there really a heaven or an afterlife? And I, I told you that um, many of these questions came from folks from different churches in which I have served. And I know who asked this question, and it's a person who has grown up in the church, and yet even at her stage, she is asking the question, is this all true? Is there really a heaven? Is there really an afterlife? And it's okay for her to ask that question. If uh, we were to try to um, get John Lennon up here, he would say, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Aha, uh -huh, uh. And then it goes on and really the reason that he's wanting to imagine there's no heaven is that then it would, it, would, it would stop religious people from arguing so much, is his point. So he's, I don't think he's challenging the existence of heaven. But imagine there's no heaven. What would that mean? I'm going to give you just a couple of minutes at your tables to just take that a little bit farther. Imagine for you there is no heaven. And there's no afterlife. What would that mean to you? So go ahead and just chat about it for a moment or two. Get some coffee. Get a goodie. What would it mean to you if there actually was no heaven or afterlife? So I want to, I want to give you my best shot at why I believe there's a heaven and an afterlife. But I, I'm going to give you my best shot um, fully understanding that there are many people all around us who do not believe in heaven. Like, they have notions about God or a, a deity. They have notions about an afterlife, maybe. But many, many people live as though there is no end to this life, right? Um, when I do funerals, it's always interesting to me that, you know, it's sort of like, oh my goodness, here we are. And did any of us expect to be here? No. Is any of us very comfortable being here? No, not at all. 
because death is the thing we fight our whole life long, right? I mean, we put creams on our faces to defy death. We, we exercise like crazy to put off death. Um, and so many people just aren't very comfortable talking about death, and therefore they don't have to talk about the afterlife. But I think at the end of it all, most people think there's probably a God who probably will say to everybody, it's okay, you can come to heaven now, right? Uh, but what if there is no heaven? What if there is no afterlife? What if this life is all that there is? I, I think we have to grant that that's a possibility unless there is something that tips the scale, something that moves the needle and convinces us that there is a heaven. So if I asked you, well, prove to me that there's a heaven, you can't prove to me that there's a heaven. You can't uh, show me somebody who, who went there. You can't take me there. So all of it is based on things that are reasonable and things that take us to the place of believing that there's a heaven, that there's an afterlife. So I, I want to tell you what tips the scale for me. The, the thing that moves me towards belief and away from doubt, um, even though it would be very possible to doubt that there's a place called heaven. So this is going to look ridiculously wordy, but I'll explain what I mean. I think there are signs of individual consciousness that it is not only a result of evolutionary biology. So a, a very popular thought is that we are the result of evolutionary biology, right? That, that we have evolved to a certain place. So some of the questions that we're going to be looking at um, also are accounted for by this notion of evolutionary biology. If you give evolution long enough, surely it can come up with every assortment of, of variables, right? So some people believe that the consciousness um, that each of us has present to us is the result of a long process of evolutionary biology. That, that consciousness is simply um, a motor function or a, a body function or a, a biological function of the body. That, that it's not a spiritual thing, um, it's, it's not a religious thing. But when people talk to me about the existence of God and all the other things that we imply by that, the single strongest argument in my mind for God and heaven and many other things is human consciousness. It may not be that for you, but I can't account for consciousness without God. I'm going to try to sort of parse that out. But the idea that when I die, the machine that is my body... Um, ceases, and with it, consciousness is, is unacceptable to me. It, it just feels as though the consciousness that is me, my sense of me, my sense of people around me, my sense of community, my sense of my world, um, my consciousness demands in my mind to keep on existing. And it will not allow itself to stop existing because my body dies. And that brings me to a firm conviction about um, heaven and the afterlife. So here's, here's where this goes. 
the complexity of consciousness says to me that consciousness is wanting to continue to exist even after the body does. This isn't a very strong argument. It's the weakest of all of those that I want to put up for you there today. But it's just this, this sense that I'm not prepared to let my consciousness be done with the passing of my body. Um, I, I have a sense that I am looking out of my body and self-awareness, again, is auguring for this notion that when this life is over, there is a self of me. There's a consciousness, there's a sense of me that I'm aware of that I think wants to keep on existing. I'm, I'm going to suggest why I think it actually will keep on existing. But I, every funeral I think that I take, I say to people, don't you have the sense that I have that when you're looking in the mirror, that you're looking out of your body, that what you're seeing in the mirror isn't you, that there's a sense that the you that is very aware of yourself, the you is inside looking out. And if that's true, that it's looking out, maybe when this body lies down and dies, there's a me still looking. There's a me that is still existing. Um, and especially the more that I realize that we learn in, in science, scientific research about the human brain and the human mind, um, so little of it is being used, so little of it is being taxed, that it's a waste. It's just a waste of a good consciousness if it stops existing when I die. Don't you agree? You do. I know you do. I'm going to keep on going. I don't think you can account for morality apart from consciousness and the transcendence of the human body after death. Um, evolutionary biology may account for about everything that could happen in my body, even including consciousness. Maybe it could be sooner or later it could have happened. But the thing that I think wouldn't have evolved into any reasonable state is the sense of morality. Um, that I have a sense of right and wrong, of good and bad, um, and, and that's not just a physical function, that's not a brain function. It is something that seems to have been built into me, born into me, and I think it is one of the things that is sort of shaking its fist uh, at the notion of the cessation of consciousness at death and saying, no, no, no. Because just a physical body and evolution doesn't account for the sense that I have of right and wrong. Now, all around the world, people have a sense of right and wrong. They have a different sense of right and wrong, although there's a fairly common set of general rights and wrongs. I mean, th there aren't very many societies that would think murder is okay. Almost every society would say, no, 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 that's wrong. Well, how do you know that's wrong? What makes that wrong? If all we are is the result of um, systems that have all worked together to become me, why is there anything right or anything wrong? Who, who says? There's something right and something wrong. And I think that takes us to the next one, which is my sense of justice, which twins with my sense of morality. And my sense of justice says that there are things that are right and wrong, and somehow or other I'm convinced that somebody is going to say so. 
right? So for me, it's, it's unacceptable to think that I will live my life, this meaningless life of mine, um, however many scores and tens of years, and, and that when that life is over, it's, it's all finished. Um, something inside me says, no, I have this burning sense about right and wrong and about justice, that, that somebody is going to say yes or no or stop or that wasn't right or that was right. Um, and I don't grant that to you. I, I grant that, I think, to some higher being who seems to belong in a different sphere than ours. Um, and the argument for God is that there is morality and there is a judge. There is someone who is going to say yes or no, right or wrong. And he, he's going to settle bo- the books um, by the time all is, is finished and done. I'm going to ask you guys what you think, so you can push back at me if you want, but this just gets a little stronger, and for me, um, argues strongly and pushes me to the side of belief about an afterlife and heaven. Beauty cannot be accounted for by evolution. Um, there, There is something about me, there's something about my consciousness that that appreciates beauty. Um, when I look at nature, um, when I look at what God has created, when I look at human beings, there's this sense in me that there is beauty. And where does beauty come from? I, I don't think beauty comes from chance. I don't think beauty comes from evolution. You know, I don't think we evolve into people that appreciate beauty, do we? Um, was there a time in your life when you all of a sudden were a beauty appreciator? Or would you say, no, I mean, ever since I was a child, there were things that I thought were lovely. There were things that I thought were beautiful. There were things that I thought weren't lovely or beautiful, mostly brothers, um, right? So is there, a, is there an afterlife? Is there a heaven? There might not be, but if there's not, you have to tell me where consciousness came from and where it's going and why so much has been invested in me becoming what I have become to just throw it away at, at the end of the day. I think beauty is something that, that says, wait a minute, there's no way to explain this. Why, why do you have the eye to appreciate something that is beautiful? And maybe the strongest human argument that I can bring up is the sense of longing. Um, Sehnsucht is the German word. And C.S. Lewis wrote almost everything he wrote about the Zainzucht, which he called backwards nostalgia, the longing of every human heart. And I can't account for longing by an evolutionary result. The longing um, needs a satisfaction. The longing needs an object. And every human being that I know has a longing, like everybody in the room longs for something. Um, sometimes we long for things we shouldn't long for, but we all do have this sense of desire, of longing. Jewish scholars um, called it the yetzer. They, they s- said that we were created with yetzer, both good yetzer and evil yetzer. And it, it be, when we were first created, we had undifferentiated yetzer. We had undifferentiated d- desire. But when sin came, it got differentiated. But every human being was still driven by this longing, by this desire of ours. 
And we are the healthier if we have good Yetzers, if we have longing for the right thing. But I don't, um, I don't see that there's a, an answer to the question of an afterlife and heaven um, apart from what we're committed to that, that accounts for the appreciation of beauty, the longing for what the human soul is longing for. Um, if there's a better candidate, you know, bring it up and, and we'll see. Because the last thing um, that pushes me towards belief is the life of Christ. So, and once again, you know, squirrel your way back there and make sure you have the right information about Christ. Who was he? Why did he come? What did he do? And how reliable is your knowledge that Jesus died and was raised to life again? You know, if you can get yourself solid on that, then you can go and listen to what he taught. And John 14, verses 1 to 6, is the primary passage about heaven and the afterlife. And it's a story that Jesus told. So he said, I've told you I'm leaving. Um, I, I've told you I'm dying. And you're all very upset. Well, don't be upset. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. So he began to tell them about the tradition of a Jewish wedding, I explaining to them that this tradition is the reason they shouldn't be upset. So young man wants to get married. He goes to the bride's father. He says, I want to marry your daughter. The bride's father says, it'll cost you 17 cows and three bushels of gold or something. The young man goes away and talks to his accountant, comes back and says, okay, I can do it. I can pay it all. Uh, he pays the bride's father. And then rather than get married right then, he goes back home. He goes to his father's house, and he spends about a year building a place for his bride. So Jesus said, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places, and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come and receive you to myself so that where I am, you can be as well. Then, you know, the, the doubter says, excuse me, we don't even know where you're going. Where are you going, and how are we going to get there? And Jesus gives that lovely verse, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But in those verses in John 14, is Jesus actually identifying the destination of heaven um, and his intention to be in heaven personally with his disciples personally. That's, that's what the chapter is, right? I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and I will come back. So, we have, if, if the record of the Bible is true about what Jesus said, what Jesus said was, when I die, I'm going somewhere, and where I'm going is a place that I'm going to bring you to as well, and I'm the way that, that you will get to be able to go there. So, so Jesus' claim was that there's a heaven, that there's an afterlife, and that the way to that heaven and afterlife in God is through Jesus. Um, so, so I believe in heaven. But you didn't expect me to say I don't. But what I want you to do is push hard into the belief about it and then ask yourself, what does it mean? What, what would it have meant if I didn't believe in heaven or if there actually is no heaven? Well, then what does it mean if I believe there is a heaven? I mean, what, what difference is it going to make for me today and tomorrow and each day of this week, um, how much difference is there really 
in the existence of heaven.